right, and we are rolling once again. Brother Kevin, how are you today, man? Man, I am good, and I'm super excited about starting this study on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Yep. I know that you have always been a fan of kicking the hornet's nest and stirring up trouble. And this is definitely one of those issues that can stir up trouble because this is one of those, um, for lack of a better term, sacred cows that exist within the culture of the churches of Christ. And there, I mean, this is a point that congregations and other people have divided on. There's a lot that has happened here. There's a lot that has gone down with this particular topic. And there's a lot of people that are very passionate about the positions that they hold. There are a lot of people that are passionate about um, what this is, what it means, how it operates, how it works. And this is a position that a lot of people have had that has done untold damage to different lives, to different families. It's ripped families apart. It's ripped churches apart. It's ripped congregations apart. And it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. Well, and when you talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, there's probably not a more divisive topic as far as theology. Even people who agree on a lot of things when you start talking about marriage, divorce, and remarriage end up disagreeing with some of the uh, more subtleties, minute details. And it's just interesting to me to see all the different views and opinions. Um, A lot of Bible scholars have said there's never been a more debated topic in history than marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And it, because it's not just one particular church or either even denomination, but it's even within denominations, even within groups, even within congregations, even among the closest friends, there are going to be a lot of disagreements on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And what I have found to be true is that most people are unsatisfied with hearing sermons and lessons and even reading articles and books on marriage, divorce, and remarriage because it's oversimplified. A lot of times people will oversimplify it. And this is not a, a a simple topic at all by any stretch of the imagination. I was joking about how we're, me and you were going to be doing several lessons on this. And, you know, we may end up doing six, seven, eight because I want to get in the weeds. Most people don't get in the weeds when they talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You just hear them quote a couple of passages and say, okay, this should settle it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Well, man, I want to get in the weeds. Um, I love talking about this. This is one of my favorite topics to discuss, not because of, of the damage that it's caused and not because of how horrible divorce is, but because of what I am extremely convicted is the truth on this topic that is uh, good news for a lot of people that it brings forth future and redemption and hope where what I used to believe on this only brought forth judgment, condemnation, and uh, really just hopelessness to a lot of people. And uh, for a few minutes, I would just kind of like to tell a little bit of my backstory, if that's okay with you, Lee. Yeah, brother, get after it. And before you get really get into that, though, I want to say that this, anytime you start getting into interpersonal relationships, especially one as close as marriage, because there's no closer human relationship that we can have than marriage. You know, some would say that having children is a closer relationship than marriage, especially for a mother, because the mother, you know, um, incubates the child and grows the child within herself. And that child is really a part of herself. And then after childbirth, you know, the mother child bond is strong. Well, you know, a marriage is a choice that two grown people make to grow together and become one with one another and to be with each other. And that there are so many layers that go into that relationship and making it work. 
And you have a lot of individuality within those relationships. I mean, there's no two marriages that are exactly alike. You know, you, you and I have both talked about our marriages on this podcast. We both talked about our wives and you've talked about how Bethany is, you know, the, a great woman. She's the best woman. I've talked about how Kim is the best woman. You guys have a great marriage. Kim and I have a great marriage and it takes work to have that, but your marriage and our marriage don't look anything alike either. Though they're both great, they look nothing alike. And that's part of the reason why this is so hotly contested is because there's so much nuance to it. There are so many layers that go into it. And to really do justice to a topic like this from a scriptural perspective, you have to get into the weeds. So with that little bit of rambling over with, um, I know you're extremely passionate about this because of what you've experienced in your life. And I know you have a desire to share that with our audience. So go ahead. I'll give you the floor to it. So when I was <clears throat> growing up, I grew up with what I what I consider the traditional Church of Christ position, which is divorce. Divorce is sinful. It's wrong. Um, divorce and remarriage is wrong, except for fornication. And that was what I was always taught. That's what I always firmly believed. But of course, divorce was not even in my vocabulary. That was something other people did, but that certainly wasn't something that was ever going to happen in my life or to my marriage. And unfortunately, um, my first my first wife, she did commit adultery. And at that point in time, um, I was very legalistic. And um, I would say she was very legalistic, but, you know, obviously I don't want to get into a lot of detail there because that's been a long time ago. And my my point is not to defame uh, my my ex-wife, but what was interesting about it is during that time, you know, we, we try to make things work. Um, she just quite frankly was not interested. And of course, like I said, she committed adultery, ended up getting together with another man. Uh, said that that was the only man that she would ever love. And so from my perspective, you know, okay, I've got the the legal requirement here to be able to divorce and remarry. She's not interested in making things work. She's She's got this other man now. And so that's exactly what I did. We ended up divorcing. In fact, I my belief was so strict on this that I personally was so convicted that I I believed that I had to have adultery on my divorce certificate in order for me to be able to to have a legitimate divorce. Oh wow. <clears throat> so yeah, I was I was very strict. Now, I would not have said that everybody had to, but when I was now in that position, that's how strict I personally was that unless I actually have <laughs> adultery on the divorce certificate, God would not recognize it as a as a divorce for for, for adultery and fornication. You know, that's something I, scriptural. I know people in our brotherhood that bind that very thing, that if you get a divorce, even if it is for adultery, but it doesn't say that on your divorce certificate or your divorce papers or decree or whatever it is, that you don't have a valid divorce and you can't remarry. So I know people that hold that same position, but they go a step further and they bind that on others. Yeah. And so that that is something that I actually ended up getting on on my divorce certificate. In fact, the attorney that we worked with, he said this is the first one he had ever done because of how difficult it is. But my ex-wife, she actually had to agree to it. But because in order for them to put it on there and she's like, well, yeah, that's, that's why he's doing it. You know, I don't I don't care. I'm done. I'm done with a marriage. I already got another man. <clears throat> so so that's it. That's ended up what, what happened. And so during that time, you know, I have my my training in legalism 101 <laughs> a legalist among legalists and so you, got I, your doc you had your doctorate in it dude that's so, not 101 you had your doctorate well so so during this time i actually started going in even a more conservative direction wondering if i if i had a right to remarry 
<clears throat> so I started to not not because of what I had always been taught, but because I was wondering, okay, do I have a right to remarry? And I want to be able to go through and study some of these alternative views because a lot of our, our brethren and quite frankly, a lot of people don't even know that there's alternative understandings to the exception clause. <clears throat> For example, you have the betrothal view, you have the ancestral view, and those are all topics that we do plan on getting into and uh, in quite detail. So I went that direction with it and started to really question, do I have a right? Uh, is this something that I'm, I'm able to do? Um, even though she committed adultery, do I have a right to remarry? So I really studied more from a even a more conservative perspective than I ever had before. And as I studied through those topics, and as I said, we'll get into that in later episodes, because this will probably be a five, six, seven, eight episode series. But as I studied through those, I, I came to the conclusion that, yes, divorce or fornication, I, I do believe was scriptural and uh, did allow for a remarriage. But then I started thinking to myself, based upon the view that I held, now my former wife, my ex-wife, will never be able to remarry again. And that's because mainly because of me. Now, some people could say, well, no, that was because of her and that's a consequence. And that was something that she chose. And so therefore, she's just going to have to live with that the rest of her life. And that's what I believed and, and taught. And as I thought about that, I thought, wow, like, you know, had I just maybe remained single for another five to 10 years, possibly she could have come around 20 years. I don't know. But because now, you know, I, re, you know, believe that I can remarry and I've put her away now she's she's going to live single the rest of her life. What what a horrible uh, decision, and what a what a horrible power position that God has put people in to make such a decision like that. Yeah. And I have actually known of people who their spouses did cheat on them, and they both held that view. And the man or the woman would hold that over them and say, "You know what? You've done this, but I'll I'm going to continue married. But you're going to do everything I say, and if not, then I will divorce you, where you'll never be able to remarry again because you did cheat on me. And so you better you better do exactly what I say. And they hold that over their head the rest of their life because they realize if they don't, then their belief says that they can never remarry again. I've so I've just seen a lot of a lot of things that really made me question. I did a lot of research and study, so I ended up getting into the early church fathers and doing extremely in depth study with them. I talked to people in our own brotherhood, outside of our own brotherhood, Jewish scholars, Catholic scholars. Um, just was reading all sorts of stuff that I could, and you know, of course, reading the Bible first and foremost. But outside of my own understanding, I wanted to get other people's opinions on both the left and the right side, and. So I, I just spent a long time because this was something that really just uh, had bugged me for a while um, going through it because it's easy to talk about it from the outside. But when you're actually going through something like that, um, it you changes know, it's, your perspective. Well, it changes it, it hardcore. A question, a question came to my mind. And, 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 and right now I'm just kind of giving my overview story and then we're going to get into all this. So if you disagree with anything I'm saying, that's OK. But I do hope that you will continue listening to see why I changed. But one thing that really made me question is, according to my view, I, I can remarry, but my ex-wife can't. And as time progressed in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I have forgiven her and I hope one day she, she ends up finding the Lord again. And I hope one day that she can find her a good husband. Now, this is what I was thinking in my mind and that she can move forward in life. And I thought, why that, that, why would I be more merciful than God in a situation like that? And, you know, that was kind of a scary thought because I had no hard feelings. Um, you know, it was just one of those things where this was a horrible situation. And 
when people say, well, they want to see individuals face consequences, trust me, there's consequences on no matter what happens. You know, we talk about innocent party, guilty party, whatever. There's always consequence, no matter what. And I just I started just thinking to myself, this is interesting. I want to hear what others have to say. I want to dig into this really, really deep. And so that's what took me to more of a conservative position, uh, at least not more. Well, not a more conservative position, but a more conservative approach when I looked at some different beliefs to what other people have held. And then I started looking at more open-minded approaches as well and more open-minded uh, beliefs on this and understandings. And so I just really spent a long time studying all this because in my view, if I had to remain single, I would remain single. If that's what God was calling me to do, I would have done it. Um, and so then I was wondering, well, and if she needs to remain single, then I believe I need to continue teaching that. But I want to actually know. It's not enough. Matt, quoting Matthew 19, 9 was not enough anymore. I wanted to know. I wanted to do as much digging and studying as possible. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking about is that's exactly what is, is a result of that. And I'm thankful that God allowed me to go through a lot of these different trials because uh, I have been able to help a lot of people, uh, I believe. I've been able to get a lot of information out in the hands of people who otherwise perhaps um, didn't do as much digging because they weren't in some of the same situations and people who felt trapped um, because of, of now what I clearly believe the Bible to teach has been able to open up uh, a lot of opportunities for people to to find Jesus in ways that otherwise they may have not before. Well, and I think that your approach to all this is commendable because there are so many people who, you know, there are so many people who if they were to take or examine the line of reasoning and the, the process that you went through, you know, they're going to castigate you for the process from the jump. A Catholic, I mean, you read what Catholics say, you can't trust anything a Catholic says. And these Jewish people, you can't trust anything them Jewish people say. They rejected Jesus from the beginning. You can't believe anything those people have to say. But to me, that demonstrates a very narrow mind because, you know, we can't say that we have a line or a, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the word now. It just, it was on the tip of my tongue and it's gone. But we can't say that we have an exclusive um, twist or an exclusive grasp of the truth and no one else does. Because as we discussed before, if all that there is to serving God is keeping a list, there's no way to know that we have the exhaustive conclusive list. There's no way we can do that because we are fallen, we are finite, God is infinite. There's no way that we can make that determination or that we can know. And with that being the case, it, it's the same thing with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's the same thing with any other subject. Test all things and hold fast that which is good. And I've read the work that you've done on this. I've read what you have written on it. You and I have had multiple conversations about this subject. We have gone back and forth and round and round in a good way, not argumentatively or in you know dispute with one another. But you and I have discussed this a lot. And for anyone to just discount the approaches and perspectives of other people without giving them a fair hearing to me, that's just short-sightedness, and that's not that shouldn't have the place or a place in the mind of any Christian whatsoever. We need to test all things, hold fast to that which is good. And I, I think that what you have done through this is incredibly valuable. And like you said, this is just the this is just the beginning. This is part one of what will be, you know, maybe a six or seven part series. It may even go more than that or further than that because we want to delve into this in detail because everything in scripture has a context, including marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And some of the things we're not going to get into with this, we're not going to get into homosexuality and whether two people of the same gender can marry. 
We're not going to get into that. That's something that we will likely touch on and we will cover in the future. But in this series, there's enough to just discussing the traditional view of marriage that, you know, we can, we can just spend hours just talking about this one aspect. Yeah. And that's and another uh, thing. Oh, oh sorry. I, well, I was going to say, yeah. And, and polygamy as well, that is obviously something that people have a lot of questions about and while some of it's going to overlap a little bit when we go through some of these Old Testament passages uh, throughout this this series, that's something I, we're not going to really address. We're just going to kind of assume that was a, a practice during the time without really giving it any justification or condemnation because it did happen. And I think that the way the way we're going to do this, as Lee pointed out, there's already just so much content. <clears throat> I mean, just so much content that to, to try to get into polygamy and homosexuality right now those are those are in my opinion yes there is some overlapping for sure but with what we're specifically going to address is just going to be your traditional marriage divorce and remarriage that you know when you're dealing with a, a man and a woman and they marry and they divorce you know can they remarry what are reasons for divorce all those different types of things and so that's that's going to be the focus here it's not that we're purposefully ignoring those topics we do know they exist and we do want to talk about them in the future but not for this series yeah we'll get there we'll get there but with any series that we're going to, or with any topic, especially something as deep and as nuanced as what marriage, divorce, and remarriage is, we have to start somewhere. We could start at Matthew 19. We could start at Matthew 5. We could start with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. We could start with what Paul said in Romans. You know, there are different passages that we could begin with, but where you and I have elected to start with is with the Old Testament. We're going to look at the Old Testament and we're going to specifically just look at one aspect of the Old Testament. We're going to look at the divorce certificate and this episode and the next episode, we're going to be dealing with those two things. Now, why is it important to start there? Do you think? I know for myself, when I was raised to hear lessons and I did hear lessons on marriage, divorce, remarriage, there wasn't a lot of context. There was hardly any social context or literary context. It was all it was all about just let's go to to Matthew 19, 9, let's go to Luke 16, let's go to Mark 10, let's go to 1 Corinthians 7, and let's just kind of cherry pick some of these. And it usually it wasn't even much context to it. And if it was, it was it was more of the um church's context of the day, not actually the context of the original writings. It was just very much, okay, well, how would we apply this today? Well, we, we need to understand how they actually applied it back then before we can start applying it today and what it meant to them because some, something cannot mean com- something completely different today than what it did back then. And if we are taking passages out of their context, then we can create a whole different system of things that would have not even been true back then. Even, or, yeah. yeah, it would have been on their radar. I mean, they would have never had any conception of what we're, you know, we're doing with any of this or, or how we're considering any of this. Well, and, and Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. And we have to to understand their point and their understanding. Most people study marriage, divorce, and remarriage from when they live backwards. So what they do is they go, okay, it is, you know, what is today? May, May the 23rd, 2020. And so let's start with what we know and let's work our way back to, to Paul and Jesus. Well, that's the exact opposite of how we should be doing it. Um, instead, we should say, well, let's start in Genesis and let's work our way up to understand what they believed marriage, divorce, and remarriage, just what what did that encompass? What was the reality? And if if my application today is something that would be impossible back then, 
or just would not make sense back then, then that means I need to reconsider it. And that's what I ended up doing. And I, I didn't get, I hopefully didn't give away too much when I was just giving my short synopsis of, of kind of my journey through my study on this. But obviously I did reveal some, some conclusions, but I hope people don't automatically discredit that because here's what happens when you start discussing marriage, divorce, remarriage, People automatically, especially in the more legalistic aspect, they want to take a hard line on this because they think that automatically that's that's more truthful. The harder something is, the more true it must be. And you'll hear people say, well, you know, you're just you're just trying to justify yourself. You're trying to justify other people. And, you know, you're, you're just interested in this and you're interested in that and you're not really interested in truth. And such cannot be further from the truth. Most people who are dealing with this, they really do want to know. They, they are very interested in what they need to do. Otherwise, they would just go along with their life. They really want to know. And the only way we can really truly have a good working understanding is if we start from the Old Testament, because Jesus was a Jew, Paul was a Jew, and they lived in a completely different time than we do. And we have to understand what did they think? What was their belief? What was their culture? What was their backdrop? And the only way we can know that is by looking at what the Jewish law taught. And that's going to help us to have a springboard into being able to then apply what Jesus and Paul taught. It places the New Testament within its context. And, you know, the whole of Scripture, the context of a whole is what we maneuver in, but so often we strip away that context, like you said, to cherry pick. I've, and I think a lot of it's because we inherit different positions or we take different positions and we have a presupposition towards that position. So we're going to try to find what we can support. Like we talked about in you know our very first episode some weeks back, whenever I talked about tattoos and how I felt about those and what I thought about those, I was trying to find what I believed. And for a lot of people who have never been through a divorce, if you've never been through one, congratulations, good for you. you you're you extremely fortunate. But for those who have never been through it, it's easier for them to take a hard position on something if they've never experienced it. Well, and, and that, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and what's interesting from my perspective is, you know, I, I had a, a, what I had always believed to be a justifiable reason. And yet even then I actually began starting to take a more hard stance on it after I had been divorced, not even a hard, necessarily not a hard stance, but a, a look into some harder stances because I was like, well, maybe, you know, maybe I need to remain single the rest of my life. I really, cause, cause I, um, actually I had some people send me some information like, well, now that you're divorced, I know that, you know, the church of Christ teaches that you can divorce for fornication, but, uh, I, I want to give you some material because I don't think you have a right to remarry. So, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'll look at what you have to say. Cause it's kind of interesting. I've always been attracted to more legalistic approach anyway. And so I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll take a look at it and study it. And so I, I, I went down that, that, uh, a lot of rabbit a lot of rabbit holes, actually, not just one or two. I went through down a whole lot. And that's why, to me, you know, I I, I feel not even more confident, but to, to kind of see see this as from a 360. You know, I want to be able, just like most things we discussed, to look at everything from every angle. Because, you know, when I, when I first started talking to people, I'm like, well, what's your view on the ancestral understanding of, of you know, the exception clause? I'm like, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, the, the essential exception uh, where the exception is not actually an exception clause for fornication, but it's, it's a, another way of saying, unless it's 
uh, for, for in, incestual marriages. And like, I've never even heard of that before. And so I didn't want to be the person who had never heard of things before. I, that's just how my mind operates. So I'm like, okay, I want to know if every possible, <laughs> uh, alternative and explanation here. So I can study these for myself and, and see if they're true or not, because I certainly don't want to put myself in a, in a position that would put myself contrary to God, um, certainly knowingly. And so I wanted to do as much research and as much study as I can. And so that's why we're going to be looking at probably a lot of things people have never heard of. Uh, if some of this stuff already sounds new, it's probably a lot of this is going to be new because it, to me, it's important to have a good working knowledge. And towards the end of this, I'll recommend quite a, quite a few books, even books that disagree with my position. So you can read for yourself because in, in any, anything, and this is what Lee and I always want to emphasize, you need to come to your own conclusion on things, not just because I believe it or Lee believes it or because your preacher believes it or your parents believe it or whatever. You need to come to your own conclusion and your own faith. I mean, that's what this whole podcast is about is is truly exploring faith and, and pursuing grace. We want this to be something you're exploring. And so uh, we're going to be as fair and honest to positions that he, as, as we can be. Obviously, we're going to give explanations as to why we disagree with them, but we're going to try to be as fair and honest as we can. A lot of these positions we're going to talk about are positions we used to hold and why we we held them and why we no longer hold them just like we do with many topics that we've changed on and so i'm I'm looking forward to this man this is going to be a great study i think it's going to be really really good so whenever we begin with the divorce certificate you can't have a divorce without marriage in the first place so whenever we begin i think a good place to start would probably be over in genesis whenever we see in the creation account god creating marriage or the illusion to marriage being created in the image of the first couple in Adam and Eve. Yeah, and I like to emphasize the a lot of principles because what what tends to happen, I call it principle theology. And if we're not careful, we can build certain principles up in the Bible and let that be how we interpret a lot of scripture. But there's oftentimes when we have multiple principles that go into something that we have to look at. And some of these principles are overlapping and some can at times even be oppositional. And so it's important as we go through this to look at principles. And I would even encourage people who are really wanting to study this topic to just take a notebook. And as we're going through this, write down what you think are the main principles as we're studying, because this is going to be very in-depth. And I'm going to tell you what I think are some of the main principles. And because the reason why that's important is once we have all these principles in place, it's not enough just for us to look at these Bible verses. We have to look at those Bible verses with these principles that we're going to look at as we go throughout the Old and New Testament. And so because a lot of people just look at a Bible verse and say, well, that's what it says. Therefore, we have to do it. Perhaps, but then we have to look at the context, and then even once we know the literary and social context, then we have to look at, well, are there any other principles we need to consider here um, to make sure that we are, are coming to the best conclusion? And so when you look at the creation of marriage, and we're not going to go through and read all this because that's this is somewhat of a given, but you look in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Genesis 2, 23 and 24, and the the point of emphasis that I see here is Genesis two eighteen, where God said it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. We already see the importance of relationship. We see the importance of relationship with God. We see the importance of relationship with man to woman. So there is already a, a very important principle at play here, and that is it's not good for man to be alone. And why, Lee, do you think that's important to, to recognize and understand? I think it's important to recognize and understand because it gets into a few things. I mean, there's a lot of different angles you can take with this, but one of it's because we are social creatures. We're made in the image of God. 
and God visits his love upon us. And because of that image that we bear, we also desire to express that love and share that love upon someone else and with someone else. We're social creatures. We don't do well in isolation from one another. Um, there are some who have said that capital punishment is more humane than solitary confinement for that reason. Um, another issue that I've heard brought up in the past is the idea that the fullness of the image of God is found in both male and female, that whenever you take man and woman together as a unit in the bond of marriage, that that is a more complete and perfect representation of the image of God. So not being alone, having a spouse is something that adds benefit to our lives. It makes our lives richer. It makes our lives more fulfilling. It um, provides a sense of joy. It provides a better sense of purpose. It also provides the means by which we continue and propagate the species. You know, we have offspring, we're fruitful and we multiply. We have and raise children. And in that, love begins to grow exponentially. You know, you begin to, you know, give that love to your spouse. You grow closer to them. It's just, I mean, I could ramble on and on and on about it. But to me, for man to be alone, is something that some people choose and some people can do okay with that. But in a general sense, in an almost universal sense, yeah. we do far better together than we do alone. Well, and to me, this is interesting because when it's said, this this is said before sin entered the world. This is said before any, any we could claim any cultural context. Uh, this is creation, that, that it is not good for man to be alone. And, and God recognizes that. God created us to in, in, in a way where most people need somebody. That's just, it's just that simple. And so that to me personally is a very important principle. The fact that right before and during and after this whole creational process of, of man and woman and, and marriage the idea is it's not good for man to be alone. Um, if God wanted everyone just to be single, if God wanted everyone to uh, just walk around and, and just be able to just see each other at church and, and you know, just kind of hang out with everybody, well, that, that would be that. But God realized that's not good. That's not good. And then there certainly are some people, you know, there's exceptions to everything. And there are some people who uh, they may go their whole life without marrying, but the general principle of the way that God created man and woman is it's it's not good. It's not good to be alone. And that's why uh, one of the, the key aspects there of marriage. And so once again, this is a universal and creational understanding principle here for, for mankind. So when we when we look at that, let's let's go ahead and jump a little bit because uh, I know we have a lot of material even just to cover today. So when we think about marriage, God created marriage. We see marriage in the garden. We see it's not good for man to be alone. And the idea of divorce is so prominent today. I mean, you know, everybody, everybody knows somebody who's been divorced. And by the way, divorce doesn't just affect the two people who are divorced, but it also affects families. It also affects people who remarry. It affects so many different people. So when people look at the stats of how many people who've been divorced, it's not just people who've been divorced, but it's also, well, how many of those people who've been divorced have been remarried? And how many of those people have been divorced again and remarried again? And, and you, you begin to look at all these different things and you see how prominent it is today. But the reality is this is nothing new. Divorce, yeah. divorce is not a new concept. This isn't something that, you know, 
2000 years after Jesus came to earth or, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years later after mankind has never had any divorce. Now, this is just kind of something that's cultural that's popped up in America. This is something that has always been. Uh, and we see this as early. Most Jewish scholars and, and even just most Bible scholars believe when you come to Genesis 21, 8 through 21, that this is the first example of divorce and that we know of, not that it didn't take place before, but that this is the first really true example of divorce that we see. And this is when Abraham sent out Hagar. And because of the context in Jewish tradition, they most scholars believe this is the first biblical reference to what we would understand as a divorce uh, very early on. And we don't really begin to see divorce as something regulated um, until we come to Moses. And so that's really the main passage. We're going to really, I guess, hit on a couple of passages today. But the main passage is going to be Genesis 21, 24, 1 through 4. And this is the probably the prominent passage of on divorce in the Old Testament. There's a lot of others, actually, that I believe people are unfamiliar with, and we're going to look at that next week. But today, really, De Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is what we're going to focus on. And so before we get into this, Lee, do you mind if I just read this, and then we can we can go through it and talk about it so people know oh, what absolutely. we're talking about? Okay. I think it would be a really good idea to read this, especially considering that this passage is really the root of what we're discussing today. Um, it'd be good to just have it in there. So yeah, get after it, brother. Okay. So it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, go ahead. The first thing that jumps out to me about that is that maybe there's something going on with that woman. You know, maybe we need to be a little bit careful with who we're choosing as our mate. And I'm being kind of sarcastic. I, I meant that as a joke and it didn't come out as funny as I thought it was going to. So <laughs> I'm like, where's the good with that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I was trying to bring some levity to an otherwise heavy, heavy topic. And it, yeah, it fell flat. That was terrible. So all of you listening, just disregard that. So good. yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. No, no, it was a terrible point. So, 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 so <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> So what we see with Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is uh, under the Jewish law, a man could divorce his wife, but a wife could not divorce her husband. And the meaning of uncleanness is highly debatable. It's still debatable today. It was debatable back then. It would continue to be debatable among Jewish rabbis and scholars. And so we're going to talk about some of the different understandings of what the reason for divorce was given here in Deuteronomy 24, because the word indecency here is really the word that people debate. This is something that a lot of people today assume they know what it, what it was with quite confidence. And I'll be honest with you, I really don't know. And I don't know if we even can know the actual meaning of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when it was originally written. And here's why. Lee, most people think that Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 today they believe that that indecency was was adultery, was fornication. That's what they think. What is the reason with what is the problem with reasoning uh, that way? 
Well, for starters, that idea of uncleanness is a different word than what would be used for adultery for just to begin with. The second reason is because the penalty for adultery, if you in the Mosaic period in that Mosaic dispensation, wherever this law was given and under which this law was executed, if you committed adultery, the penalty was death. You didn't get thrown in jail. You didn't get, you know, a slap on the wrist or a fine. And then you were forcibly divorced. The penalty was death. According to Leviticus, what was it, 20 and yeah, 20 verse around. 10. Yeah. Yeah, verse 10. And and it was for the woman and the man. So if 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 there was a if if you were caught in adultery and and you committed adultery during this time period, then divorce would not have taken place. It wouldn't have had to, because they would have died. They, they would have been put to death. And so there wouldn't have been a reason to have to say, well, if your spouse commits adultery, then you can divorce them for adultery because that wouldn't even even have been a scenario during this time uh, if it was found out that the woman or the man had committed adultery because they would have been put to death. So you wouldn't have really even had to worry about divorce. Um, however, this is where things get interesting. And once again, by the way, we're not talking about what Deuteronomy 24 came to be came to be understood as. We're not talking about what rabbis would later understand it to, to mean. We're talking about what did it mean when it was originally given. And that's a question most people don't think about. Everybody just assumes, oh, well, Deuteronomy 24 has to be talking about adultery, that the Bible there is talking about if, if your, your wife commits adultery, then you can divorce her. That just would have not made sense within this context because adultery— Requ uh, require the death penalty, um, or at least that was the result, was the death penalty, not divorce. However, this is where some debate comes in. The requirements during this time of proving any death uh, sin worthy of the death penalty during this time, it was very difficult, especially sins done in secret, and here's why. First of all, the law stated that there had to be at least two witnesses to testify, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. Well, when you start thinking about adultery, <laughs> you know, you, you may not have two witnesses to testify to something like that. Probably um, not. You I know, would wager to say that's probably not going to happen. You know, yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, you know, insert joke, unless there's an orgy or something going on, you're probably not going to have <laughs> <laughs> at least at least two witnesses to testify. Let, I mean, imagine this. Let's say you're you're coming home from work and you walk in and your wife is is having sex with a, with another man. Well, you could go and say that, but the chances of those two individuals admitting that, knowing that they could die uh, and would be put to death, would probably not agree. They would probably deny that. So. It would be very difficult, first of all, to have at least two witnesses, but then there were other uh, requirements if you wanted uh, to, to bring out an accusation. The witnesses had to prove their case, or they themselves could actually be stoned for being a false witness. And we see this in Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. And so if you did bring an accusation against somebody because of something that they did was wrong, if you could not prove it, beyond the shadow of a doubt in your own mind, believing that, hey, I know I can prove this, then if the courts looked at it and said, actually, we we don't believe you have enough evidence, now you're going to be the one put to death. So that really stopped a lot of accusations in and of itself because people didn't want to be put to death. And yeah. then finally, if the witnesses did prove their case, according to Deuteronomy 17.7, they had to be the first ones to stone those who were guilty. So when we're talking about the death penalty, it wasn't just like you could go to the court and say, hey, my wife had sex with someone, 
you know, she needs to be put to death. Th- there had to be at least two witnesses. You had to be able to prove your case or else you could even end up having the death penalty put on you. And then furthermore, if if it was found out that you were correct and that that person was guilty, you had to be the first one to, uh, to, to stone those who were guilty. So I say all that to say this is a lot of historical and biblical context that a lot of people don't even realize. And, and it was very difficult pragmatically speaking, to meet the demands of the law in order to enact the death penalty, especially, as I said before, with actions done in secret. But it was still said that if someone committed adultery, the death penalty is what was supposed to take place. Now, I will just do a side point. I don't want to talk about this too much, but I want to talk about the the bitter water test when the husband was accused by her husband, because this this could be another principle that we bring into play with this, because if a man suspected his wife of committing adultery, then he could actually have brought her to the courts. And there was a, what was called the bitter water test for her to, to drink this concoction to see if she was actually guilty or not. And all of this was, this sounds by the way, very mystical and weird, (laughs) but it's in numbers chapter five, verses 11 through 31. And all of it, it wasn't that the water itself proved if she had cheated or not, but this was something that obviously God was directly acting through. But what's interesting is that this actually protected the woman, because otherwise, if a man could just say, hey, I'm angry at my wife because I'm, I'm confident she's committing adultery, he couldn't just, just accuse her and believe that his accusation. He had to actually go through this process, and this was a process that ultimately protected the woman if she was innocent. But if she was guilty, the Bible says that there was going to be a curse that was going to be put on her. And this is, once again, highly debatable. Um, you can I just encourage you to just Google search some different articles so you can see some different perspectives. My conclusion, Lee, is that I believe that because of the death penalty at that time being the the result for adultery, I think that the curse here in Numbers 5 with the bitter water was also death. I believe that this is saying that if the woman was found out to be guilty, then she would die. And there, and the reason I believe that is, number one, because of the Bible, because of context, because that was the, that, that was the result, was the death penalty when your wife did commit adultery or if, if the man committed adultery. So that would just make sense that that's what the curse would be if it was found out that she was guilty of adultery. But also, many Bible scholars, as well as even Jewish historians and even Josephus. Now, of course, he lived in the first century, so he was still very far removed from that time. But it does give us the understanding that the Jews believed, most of the Jews believed that the penalty would be death, or, yes. or the effect of this bitter water test would be was, death. Was death, and, I, and I'll read a couple of those quotes. Um, this this one it says, "Her belly swells first, and then her thigh requ- uh, rap- uh, ruptures, and she dies." Um, that was from a a scholar actually in the medieval times. Um, John MacArthur, a lot of people know him. He just simply said the curse would have been death. And then this is Josephus. And once again, Josephus lived during the first century. And he said that if she had broken her faith of wedlock to her husband and had sworn falsely before God, she died in a reproachful manner. Her thigh fell off from her and her belly swelled with a dropsy. And these are the ceremonies about sacrifices and about the purifications thereto belonging, which Moses provided for his countrymen. He also prescribed the following laws to them. So the point is, is that 
this is a, a long way of saying that the death penalty <laughs> was, you know, the, that that is what happened when you committed adultery is you were yeah. the, the death penalty. And now proving that would have been difficult. But my point is, is that that makes Deuteronomy 24, one through four, a lot more difficult to ascertain because there's really not a, re- a lot of reason to believe when it was written that that could have been talking about adultery. Well, the scriptural and contextual evidence doesn't seem to support an adultery interpretation of, of Deuteronomy, um, especially when you consider that the penalty for adultery was death, especially when you consider the bitter water test and what that would, would do. And if it's okay with you, I, I would like to, because I'm a geek for ancient medical you know, perceptions and things like that, you know, what that bitter water test would do, and I, I want to clear this up. You may be wondering, you know, with um, that that rabbinical view from the from the Middle Ages or from way back in the day, her belly swells first and then her thigh ruptures and she dies. And you'd be wondering, well, how does that work? One of the things that we need to understand in the scriptures, depending on the context, because context is everything. Whenever the word thigh is mentioned, that's a euphemism for the genitalia. So it makes sense that we would see that take place as it relates to the genitalia because that is the structure that is utilized in cases of adultery. So whenever it's, whenever you're seeing that, you may be wondering or hearing that, well, her belly would swell and then her thigh would rupture. Oh, so her belly's going to swell and then the upper leg is just going to explode. No. Whenever you see the word thigh mentioned a lot of times in scripture, that is a reference to the genitalia. It's a euphemism. Um, sometimes the word foot is used in the same way. So that's just a, a little side note that I wanted to, to make clear what that bitter water test would actually, you know, demonstrate and how it would work, but also that idea that it was some divine manifestation of God's judgment upon her. It's not unlike the ancient uh, concept of casting lots. You know, we remember in the first century, whenever the apostles in the first chapter of Acts, they needed to find someone to take Judas's place as an apostle, they cast lots. And that was something that they did to determine what the divine will was in the absence of any direct revelation or anything like that. They would cast lots. And in their mindset, in that cons- in that um, context, they would perceive that as, you know, God's approval or disapproval or whatever else. And it's the same thing with the bitter water test. It's the same principle being applied there. Yeah. And so it is very interesting when you when you look at these passages about the punishment being the death penalty for adultery. Because once again, that's something that a lot of people just don't really think much about. And that's why it's so important to look at the context and think about these things in reality. I remember when I when I was studying through the law, the Jewish law, and I, I didn't realize that there are all these requirements that had to take place prior to the death penalty being enacted. And I thought, wow, there's a lot going on here. It wasn't just, hey, if you commit adultery, death penalty, that's it. No, there was a lot there. And and so between that and the bitter water test, as I said before, that we threw a lot of information and probably a lot of this is new to you. Maybe some of these passages you haven't even heard of, much less even thought about. So the point being is that my conclusion is during the time of Moses, especially, the penalty for adultery was death. The law taught that. I believe the bitter water test certainly implies that. As I said before, there are some alternative beliefs to that. Some people believe that it, it was another way of saying she could just never have a child. But I believe it's not only saying that, it's saying you can never have a child and you're going to die through that process of, of, of 
as you as you pointed out so eloquently that this is this is how you're going to you know basically your body's going to rupture i mean this is you're going to die this is going to be a very painful thing because you're going to be exposed as as someone who committed adultery and so that's that's what i believe that's what josephus believed that's what most uh, jewish scholars believe a lot of bible scholars believe there are some people like i said who believe different things but we would always as, as always encourage you to study those but we're given our understanding either way it doesn't really matter by the way the the you know and that's and that's the point that we're going to geek out on a lot of this stuff because we just wanted to give you a lot of context but ultimately the one thing and really the only thing that you just need to keep in your mind is leviticus 2010 the death penalty uh, or the penalty for adultery was was death. So that brings us now to the question: What is indecency or uncleanness? Yeah, in because of twenty four one through four. Yeah, because if it's not adultery, because the death penalty for adultery or the oh you you just said it and then I said it that way too because the penalty for adultery was death. Then Deuteronomy twenty four and one that uncleanness that indecency it has to be something else. And there's a lot of different ideas out there, but you can really condense those down to, to a few different possibilities. Yeah, so this is this is the three possibilities that I've kind of condensed it down to. Um, so the first one is that it could be the case that Deuteronomy 24.1 is actually about divorcing your spouse for adultery. Now you're just like, wait a minute, Kevin. You just spent like 45 minutes explaining <laughs> why that's not the case. <laughs> that cannot be the case. So have you just have you just lost your mind? So there actually is, and I believe this is a possibility. Here is the nuance. Here's the difference between between what we just said and why there are still some people who have the knowledge we just explained, but still believe it could be for adultery. They believe that this could be about divorcing your spouse for adultery when the proper legal evidence cannot be supplied to enact the death penalty, or if the husband shows a more merciful disciplinary action than death. Yeah, we'll probably get into that in the next episode. That's kind of what our plan is, but that makes a lot of sense. If, yeah, because yeah, if the husband, I mean, and I naturally think of Joseph, you know, in this, whenever Mary is, you know, with child of the Holy Spirit and Joseph, he's tossing and turning at night, he's lying awake and he's thinking about, you know, putting her away secretly, you know, not wanting to make her a public spectacle. That makes a lot of sense within the context of, of Deuteronomy 24, one through four. And this actually ended up as we're going to look in the next episode became the... The, it ended up becoming the substitute and actually the modified understanding and punishment of if someone did commit adultery instead of death, divorce was the disciplinary action, as you brought up with Joseph and Mary. So, and we'll get into that. I don't want to spend too much time on that today yet. But the point is, is that that is a possibility that it could just simply be divorcing for adultery when you didn't want to enact the death penalty or if there wasn't enough evidence for you to, you knew it was true, but you didn't want to bring it before the court. Yeah. Yeah. So that's possibility number one. Um, possibility number two would have to do with that translation of uncleanness itself, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can, and you can explain that uh, position if you'd like. Yeah. Well, as, as I understand it, that passage in Hebrews 24, where the word uncleanness is used is ervat debar, which I don't know if I'm butchering that or not. I'm nowhere near a Hebrew scholar. That's but, why I let you explain it. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. So yeah, the first joke <laughs> fell flat. So now you can laugh at my expense. That's, that's cool. I love you anyway. 
but the only other place that you really see these two words used together is, is previously in Deuteronomy. And here it refers to problems of hygiene. It refers to something dirty. It refers to your spouse being nasty in some way or just some kind of nastiness, hygienic nastiness, you know, in, in some sense. I'm, I'm trying to turn there now and I'm continuing to talk while I'm turning there. It's taking my app a minute to, to load. But that is Deuteronomy 23, and my app is moving at half the speed of smell right now. So yeah, just well, get to hear me ramble while I'm getting there. Yeah, so you have Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, where it, it refers to just hygienic problems. Yeah, yeah, so it says whenever, uh, there we go. And my app just crashed. So anyway, let's just keep on going. I don't want to keep people waiting. <laughs> so some believe that this uncleanliness mentioned in Deuteronomy 24 actually refers to a woman's menstrual flow. They believe yeah. it refers to her period. Kind of weird. I know that sounds kind of weird, but the uh, the idea behind this this interpretation is that this would render the woman unclean because remember when a woman was was on her period, she was unclean, couldn't have sex, couldn't be touched. And so if a man touched her in that condition, he would be rendered unclean himself, Leviticus 15, 19 through 33. So some scholars actually believe that this refers to a man divorcing his wife due to the uncleanness of her period. So every month he would have grounds to divorce her under this pretense, right? Yeah, and it's interesting because the... Uh, and it, as I said before, we're giving different possibilities, but I do think this has a little bit of merit to it. Quite frankly, I don't know which conclusion I even come down on, so I'll just go ahead and tell you that right now. I think all three of them have some merit. But this this possibility right here, it would actually explain why in Deuteronomy 24, it talks about how the woman is divorced for that, and then she goes and becomes another man's wife, and then uh, he hates her and divorces her. Some believe that this shows just how hard-hearted these Jewish men were, that basically they would be frustrated if they wanted sex and because their wife was on her period, they couldn't have it. So he would just get ticked off and he would divorce her and he'd go, uh, he'd be done with her. He would just be angry and he'd be done with her. And, and so that's, it's a very interesting conclusion. It's something that probably a lot of people haven't thought about. Well, and there's another layer of nuance to it. You know, whenever you think about the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of Jesus's garment and was healed, you know, there are some women even today who have hormonal challenges and, and different issues with reproduction. And there are some women who may, you know, have a period that lasts all month. They may have a period that lasts for, you know, two or three weeks, you know, because they have some sort of hormonal disorder or they have some sort of endometrial disorder or some other reproductive issue in which instead of their the menstrual phase of their, their cycle being one to four days or, or, you know, one to six days or whatever else, you know, that, that predominates it's like for two weeks at a time. And whenever you also take into consideration the ancient context that women, their value was in their ability to bear children. In a lot of cases, if a man couldn't bear a child with a woman, it stands to reason that he would resent her for that. He would despise her for that. Not only is she unclean and he can't go and, enjoy his wife sexually, but she's not able to bear him children because he can't go into her because she's unclean. Then he would be unclean. So yeah, you're not bearing me any children. You're not carrying out your wifely duties. So yeah, I'm, I'm writing you the certificate of divorce. You know, I've been, I've been putting up with this for two years, three years now. We don't have any kids. We're not able to have any kids. So I'm, I'm putting you away. Then she goes to the other man 
and same faces problem. the same issues. Yeah, yeah. That, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, so that that's a possibility. And then the third possibility, and I'm kind of condensing this. I'm sure you could you could look at some different things, but I'm just kind of trying to condense all these. So the third possibility is just this view states that the law really was just meant to cover any reason, and it was actually meant to be taken as vague. Um, it was just written in a way to say that if for whatever reason – um, you know, you want to put your wife away, then here's how it needs to be done. And here's what you need to do. So it would just basically cover everything and anything that the law was written in such a way not to be specific, but it, or to even really, yeah, or even get our law that talks specifically about divorce so much as it does, um, or not reasons for divorce so much as it does how to handle the divorce when it does take place. So it's just another way of saying when a man do, does divorce his wife because he just wanted to for whatever reason he wanted to if there was just any uh, any sense of indecency for even if it's something as little as hygiene problems whatever if a man divorces wife here's how it needs to be done and so that's that's really your your third possibility so when you summarize this and you look at Deuteronomy 24 either the indecency was adultery but it was adultery when the man wanted to divorce his wife instead of having her put to death so a more merciful approach or when a man caught his wife cheating, but he didn't have enough evidence to take it to the court, but he did want to put her away. That's what some believe. The other alternative is, once again, if a woman was considered unclean because of her period, and as we already went into the detail on that, that would be possibly the reason why he would put her away. And then the third reason is simply it doesn't really even, we're not, we're trying to understand something that's not meant to be understood. There's not actually a reason given in Deuteronomy 24. It's just more saying when a divorce does take place for whatever reason, this is how it should be handled. So regardless, though, and the reason why ultimately I think all that's interesting, but also we have to understand regardless of whatever position you take, it doesn't change the fact that what we do know is that this passage did become right or wrong. It did become the justification for Jewish men to be able to divorce their spouses for whatever reason they wanted yeah. to. And even from Hillel, uh, this, the, the, the great rabbi Hillel, that became his, the school of thought was even if your wife burnt dinner, it literally says that. And we always sometimes in the Church of the Christ joke, well, if, you're, you know, if your wife burns the biscuits or whatever, well, that actually is not just something we made up. That actually came from a Jewish rabbi. And yeah. the idea was you could, because of Deuteronomy 24, you could divorce your wife for any reason any reason you wanted to, even if she burnt uh, the, the dinner. So regardless of what it actually meant when it was originally written, what we do know is that it became something that was interpreted as justification and even a command to divorce your wife if you didn't like her. That's what it ended up becoming. So I don't even know if we're ever going to really know the original intent of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. I don't even know if we can really know because they changed it. The Jews ended up having their own interpretation of that, which we'll get into later how Jesus even taught that was not correct, but we don't really know for sure. But here's what we do know from Deuteronomy 24. This law was meant to regulate divorce, not promote it. Yeah. And I think that that's an extremely important distinction to make because whenever you begin to discuss marriage, divorce, and remarriage, especially in the churches of Christ, if you present the idea that 
that goes beyond the the part and parcel of you have an innocent party and a guilty party. And if adultery takes place, well, the guilty party can't remarry, but the innocent party can, and they can divorce for that reason, but otherwise they can't divorce. Or if they do divorce, then they have to remain separated or be reconciled into one another. If you present any other perspective, even with contextual evidence and scriptural evidence or whatever else, the accusation that comes back is, is, oh, well, you're saying that God, God just lets you divorce and you can just divorce for any reason you want to and that God approves of divorce. You're just basically saying God approves of divorce. No, 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 no. We're not saying that God approves of it. We're saying that it's something that was regulated. And that's an incredibly important distinction to make. And it's so easy to build straw men and attack those straw men. It's way easier to do that than it is to actually engage with the discussion and engage with the argument that's being presented. God's intention was never for divorce to be a thing, but because of our fallenness, because of our finitude, because of the attitude we have, the hardness of our hearts, mankind, not just Jews, but mankind in general, God allowed it to take place. And And what's so interesting to me is the fact that divorce was put into place and God allowed it to be put into place as a protective measure for the woman. It was put in place to protect her from becoming destitute or having to turn to prostitution or worse in order to survive. Yeah, and this is something that we'll get into when we start talking about Jesus when he's teaching on this, but there, a man was never commanded to divorce his wife if he just wanted to. That that was never a command. What was commanded is when a divorce did take place that you did have to give your wife a certificate of divorce. That was what was commanded, as we see in the law in Deuteronomy 24. And as we see in that passage, the law commanded that when you do divorce your spouse— for whatever reason, you had to, or your wife, because at that point, uh, a man could marry as many women as he wanted. And once again, that's a little overlap with polygamy. But the point is, is that a man could always marry any woman he wanted at any time during during this time, during the Jewish law. A woman, however, she couldn't. She could only be married to one man at a time. And if she did not, if she had been married previously and the man did not give her a divorce certificate, then she was not allowed to to marry another man because she was still considered that man's property. She was still considered belonging to that man. So you're exactly right that we see from Deuteronomy 24 that the law was actually put in place to protect the woman so that if a man was tired of his wife, he couldn't just say, well, I'm kicking you out of the house and I'm just going to go and marry another woman because he could do that no matter what. But if he did that, then that meant that the woman would have not been allowed to marry another man because she would have not had her divorce certificate, but yet God, who is who loves all and is very concerned with protecting people, especially those who are being mistreated, he gave this command that when you do divorce, you had to give a divorce certificate, and that divorce certificate was was vital to the woman because it allowed her to be free from that man to marry any man she wished. And so the divorce certificate, it intrinsically gave the right to remarry and allowed the woman to go free. Um, Exodus 21, 1 through 11, Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14, and of course, Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Those other passages we're going to talk about next week specifically. But the wording on the divorce certificate can actually be traced as far back as the 5th century BC. And this is what it actually says on there. You are allowed to marry any man you wish. 
And uh, some of the sources that I recommend is uh, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible, the Social and Literary Context by Instone and Brewer, um, the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. It's put together by Contemporary Biblical Scholarship. And then also uh, the commentary of Matthew R.T. France. He, he deals with that, too. And so there's a lot that if you really want to geek out and get into a lot of the historicity of that, you can do that. But the point is, is that the certificate was vital. Because without it, the woman could not marry another man under Jewish law. And if she tried to do so, she would be considered an adulteress. And guess what? She could be put to She'd death. She'd be stoned to death. Yeah, absolutely. She'd so, be stoned to death for it. But if a woman did have the divorce certificate, then she was free from that man. The Bible teaches that she would have had no husband, John four seventeen, and she would have been able to be free to marry another man. Um, and, and you actually, I know you, you, me and you had discussed this, you pointed out that uh, if a man even went on a, a long journey, he would often provide his wife with a divorce certificate already just so she could have that in case he died. So she would be free to remarry. I think that's very interesting. Well, it's incredibly interesting. And, you know, the book you recommended by uh, David Instone Brewer, I picked that book up and read it. It was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. It, anyone who's interested in this topic should read that book. You may find yourself disagreeing with him. You may find yourself agreeing with him wholeheartedly, but he raises some points and presents context that is incredibly hard to ignore. And that's one of the things that he said, if a Jewish man were to go on a long journey for business or if he were going somewhere else, you know, in, in whatever sense, if he was going to be away from home for a while and it was a perilous journey, he would often give his wife a certificate of divorce. He wouldn't put her out of the house. It was provisional. He loved his wife enough to try to look after her, God forbid, in case something happened to him. So he would give her that divorce certificate. So if he never returned from his journey she would be able to present that to the court so that she could remarry any man that she wished or that so that she would be free from that husband and free from that marriage. And that's, and because, that's, oh, well, go I ahead. Was gonna say, yeah, I was going to say, because if he died while he was out on that journey, it, it's not like it is today. Like, God forbid, if I go on vacation to Bolivia or something and I end up dying, my body will get shipped back to the United States. Unless Kim says, ah, just dump him in the ocean. And, you know, if, if that happens, well, whatever. But, you know, it'd be easy to find my body and get me back. In that era, if you have a Jewish man in a faraway country, he's off, you know, taking care of his business and he dies, his body may never make it back home. And his wife will still be considered married to him. He's no longer there to provide her means. He's no longer there to ensure she has enough food to eat, that she has clothing, that she has shelter. And she's, they're going to run out of resources at some point. So she could use that divorce certificate to protect herself from destitution should her husband died and it be unable to be proven. Well, and, and as uh, Scott McKnight, Howard Marshall, Joel, uh, Joel Green, some of these others have pointed out that the reason also why they did that is because <clears throat> not just so that the woman would be protected, obviously, but because if she didn't have that, if she didn't have that and she tried to marry another man, the man would not have married a woman who had been previously married unless she had that divorce certificate. That was vital. And here's why, too, because he also would be uh, considered committing adultery. So that's why that divorce certificate proved essential, because here, if, if this woman comes and says, okay, I, you know, my husband died. And he's the first question is going to be, where's your, where's, where is the certificate that proves you're no longer married to this man? Well, he died while he was on a journey. Uh, okay. Well, um, where, how do you know this? You know, where, how, how can we be certain? Because what if 
you're lying to me and your man come, you know, your husband comes home and you actually were, didn't ever get that certificate. And now me and you both are caught in adultery and we can both be stoned to death. So most people don't understand, at least I didn't in the churches of Christ, the importance under the Jewish law of the divorce certificate. But here is the secondary thing that we need to look at from Deuteronomy 24 so not only did this regulate divorce to protect the woman so she could remarry, and that's why it said that they had she had to have that divorce certificate, but once she did remarry, she could not return back to her former spouse, even if her even if the new spouse died. And the reason this is this has been interesting to a lot of people. People are like, well, yeah, it talks about her defilement. And, you know, that's why the defilement on the land and all of this, and that there's a lot of interpretation of with that passage too. But here is what most scholarship is agreed upon. This shows that the divorce not only dissolved the marriage, but also it protected the woman from, of course, as we just stated, being able to remarry. But also it protected her from the future where she couldn't be uh, reclaimed. So a man couldn't go back and reclaim her and say, okay, well, your new husband divorced you. Well, you're, I'm going to reclaim you now as my own now that you've been divorced a second time or now that your second husband died. I'm now reclaiming you as my possession. Or he couldn't go back later. And if she, let's say she, she, her second marriage, she married a man who was extremely wealthy and he died and then she inherited that. Well, then her first husband come away to me. You're still mine. I'm going to reclaim you now that your second husband's died. I'm going to reclaim you as mine. Well, the law said you could not do that. And so this is another way that the law was actually protecting the woman. And what, what breaks my heart, Lee, is that we've used Deuteronomy 24 as nothing more to try to figure out why you can and can't remarry when the whole purpose of Deuteronomy 24, as Jesus pointed out too, and once again, we'll later look at that, but the whole point is to protect the woman from her hard-hearted husband or husbands. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, it's, it's a shame that we have looked at Deuteronomy 24 in this case law study instead of realizing the provisions and how God is protecting the woman who would be abused uh, either literally or financially or just mentally and kicked out. And he's protecting her to make sure that she's able to have a future, which is no, no matter what, whether she did commit adultery, whether he just didn't like her for whatever reason, once she had that divorce certificate, she was freed up and he could not reclaim her. And I want to read this. Um, Jochem Jeremiah, he actually talks about this in, in his book, Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus. He said that the reason why this is very vital is because the Jewish law of the divorce certificate marks a very distinct difference between other Near Eastern laws during yeah. that same time period that did not protect the woman. And he actually quotes this reference. The Middle Assyrian law stated that a woman could be reclaimed within five years by her first husband. The divorce certificate, though, under Jewish law, protected the woman against this. And so he brings out that this also shows the conditional and contractual understanding of marriage and divorce. So although the divorce right was only given to the man later on in history, and we'll talk about this some later next week, too. I know we keep saying that, but we don't want to get into too many different things right now. But although the divorce certificate right was only given to the man later on in history, the woman could actually sue under certain situations, which could legally force the man to give her a certificate and free her. So even, but even then the woman still had to be given a divorce certificate from her husband. A woman could not give a divorce certificate to her husband. The man had to give the divorce certificate to his wife. But the point that, that Jochem Jeremiah's here pulls out by looking at the historicity is that this is in contrast to the other uh, lands and the in the other cultures that were not Jewish that did not protect the woman, where the woman could be reclaimed back and forth, God's law didn't allow for that. 
Well, and that's what's so amazing about this is that you have the Code of Hammurabi, which is regarded as being a precursor to the Law of Moses. And by precursor, I don't mean that it inspired it or that it was the forebearer, that it was the inspiration for the Law of Moses. But as cohorts, the Code of Hammurabi is arguably older than the Law of Moses. And it's regarded as being the first example of just law in the ancient Near East. And when he talks about the middle Assyrian law, that's what he's referring to as the Code of Hammurabi. And Hammurabi's code allowed the first husband to lay claim to his wife after five years, as what Joachim Jeremiah has stated. And that's what makes the Law of Moses so revolutionary is that it provides a greater level of freedom to the woman. It provides a greater level of support to her and it, elevates her from a piece of property to an actual person. She's free to marry any man she wishes. She's not beholden to go back to that first husband. And that's revolutionary. And to me, it also gives us a window into the heart of God. Because like you said, God cares for those who are being mistreated. God cares for those who are downtrodden. He cares for those members of society that are on the lower tiers or the lower rungs, those people in those lower castes, you might say. And that describes an, a woman in the ancient Near East. She had way more rights under the law of Moses than she did in other contemporary ancient Near Eastern law systems. So in this sense, this is an extremely forward-thinking provision. Now, according to our standards, it still seems backwards. According to our modern context, it still seems archaic. And it is archaic because it's old. It's very old. But for the time in which this law was encultured, it was incredibly forward-thinking. It, it would be like comparing the law of America to the law of North Korea. Well, and, and when you put all this together, the the kind of con- to, to kind of conclude all this today, the what, what are the main points to take away from this? Because here's what sometimes I heard people say when when I started writing about a lot of this, and I, I would cite a lot of historical sources, and I would really get in depth with what we've talked about with even the bitter water test and some of these passages people haven't even talked about. Sometimes people respond by saying, well, this just seems so complicated. Uh, and the answer is, you betcha. That, that, yeah. You're exactly yeah. right. because And that's the problem with oversimplification. When, when we as Christians think that we can just go to one Bible verse and say, God says it, that settles it, um, that is arrogant. It is ignorant. And I'm not saying that to be ugly by any by any, well, any stretch of the imagination. But when it someone, when it, yeah. and and I will say that those, what I found is that my conclusion of marriage, divorce, and remarriage was founded upon a quick, microwavable theology on on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I didn't understand any of this. All this stuff we're talking about. I didn't have a clue. All I knew is what Jesus said, and that's all that mattered. But I could only properly understand what Jesus said if I understand the context in which he said it in, in the backdrop in which he was saying it, and who he was saying it to, with the principles that God also states throughout the law, both Old and New Testament. So here, here are the kind of the conclusions, because if someone is serious about studying marriage, divorce, remarriage, they need to be serious about doing it. And if it's something that is, you know, when people say, oh, well, you know, you're just overcomplicating. No, 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 no. We're not overcomplicating. We're simply stating this is everything the Bible says about it. 
this is the reality of the situation. We want to make everything so cut and dry. We want to put it in a box. We want to put a nice little bow on top of it and say, this is right. This is wrong. This is guilty. This is innocent. This is black. This is white. It's so simple. The truth of the matter is, if I was a Jew living under the old law, this is this would have been the reality of the situation at the time. So, but here is here is what we can know that is simple for everybody to understand. Number one, divorce was a reality. It's nothing new. It happened then. It happened today. We can talk about how our cultures go into pot, but quite frankly, our culture looks really good compared to a lot of other cultures. And oh, yeah. so, so divorce divorce was a reality. It is a reality, but especially during the Jewish times, certainly was a reality. The second thing is that God regulated divorce under the Jewish law, and this protected the woman. This protected the woman, especially if she had a hard-hearted husband. But even if she didn't, even if she was guilty of adultery, then when their husband divorced her, if he didn't enact the death penalty, if he did divorce her and gave her a divorce certificate, she could still remarry. So there was not a case. This is vital. This is vital. People don't like this, but this is vital. There is not a case under Jewish law that once divorced and had a divorce certificate that someone could not remarry. Didn't yeah. mean didn't mean that what they did prior was right. Doesn't mean that things you know weren't wrong to 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 bring about that conclusion. But once a man divorced his wife, moral grounds or no moral grounds, if she sinned, if she didn't sin, if he sinned, if he didn't sin, whatever. Once that divorce certificate was given and written, she was free to marry any man she wished. And of course, he could always the man could during the during that time could have had multiple wives and could always have married as many women. So this law was not for the man. It was for the woman to protect her. And and then third, a woman could not be married to another man under Jewish law unless her husband died or divorced her and she had her divorce certificate. So we, we have to remember this is important too. a woman was bound to her husband. As long as he lived, as long as he was alive, she was bound to him. But if he divorced her and gave her that divorce certificate, then she no longer had a husband, John 4, 17. Or if he died, then she was free to remarry. But other than that, a woman could not remarry unless she had that divorce certificate that allowed her to be free. But as long as her husband was living and she was married, she could not be married to another man, whereas a man could have been married to another woman. But if she got that divorce certificate, then that did allow her to marry another because at that point she had no husband. And once a woman was divorced and she had her certificate, then she no longer had a husband and she could remarry. But remember, once again, I want to keep emphasizing this. A man would not need the certificate because he could marry more than one woman in any case. And I would say the most important point in all of this is that divorce always dissolve the marriage. There, There is none of this in the eyes of God, who's married, who's not married. Here's how you knew who was married. Did they have a, did, you know, here, here's how you know, were they, did they have, were they married to someone? Doesn't matter if there's a second, third, fourth or marriage. Here's how you knew if someone was divorced and could remarry. Did they have their divorce certificate? If so, there wasn't this kind of mystical in the eyes of God, this person is still always married to their first spouse. In fact, Deuteronomy 24, one through four teaches that de- uh, that divorce was so dissolved, it dissolved the marriage so much that the woman could not even go back to her first husband. If the, if the divorce certificate did not dissolve the marriage, then she would have had to go back to him. But this proves that it did dissolve the marriage so much where she couldn't even go back to him once she had remarried. Well, you can't dissolve it much further than that. And, you know, this really will be interesting when we get into 
what Paul says about being reconciled under her husband and all that in future episodes. Cause we are going to get there. It'll take us a little time, but we will get there. Yeah. And but, we, and we, and we have to understand all of these things first, because by the way, everything we just said, I don't know anybody who disagrees with it. Now yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get into application, but when we're looking at Jewish law, I don't know anybody who argues that a divorce certificate did not dissolve the marriage. I literally do not know. And trust me, I have checked a lot of sources. Now there may be, you know, somebody, out in the middle of nowhere who who has their you know phd from a from a cracker jack box who says well that's what i believe and so i'm one person <laughs> but but i don't know of anybody i don't know and i don't, and i'm even talking about some of my most legalistic friends who would argue that they would just say that a change took place in the new testament but we're not going to debate that today but what we what we have to say is this is what the jewish law taught ultimately a lot of things can be debated about the nuances of of uncleanness and indecency and all of those types of things. But what will, what cannot be debated, I believe clearly, what cannot be debated is the fact that the reason why these, well, number one, the divorce certificate allowed the woman to remarry. Number two, the divorce always dissolved the marriage. And number three, the woman could not go back to her first husband after she had remarried. Those things, in my mind, are, are you, you can't dispute those. Those are clear. Now, a lot of the other things you can, but those three things are extremely clear and are going to be important going forward. Well, and that last principle, that is the most important principle moving forward is that divorce dissolved the marriage in every sense, in every instance, without exception. Divorce always dissolved the marriage. And that, that to me is one of the most important things we need to consider as we move forward to the New Testament, because there are a lot of people that take that view. Well, if you got a divorce and, you know, adultery didn't happen or, or maybe you just got a divorce in general, you know, I'm thinking of some of our no exception brethren. Well, in the eyes of God, you're still married in the eyes of God, you know, that, you know, a marriage is permanent. And if you divorce and you go and marry someone else, well, you're committing adultery. We can only commit adultery if you're married or you're with someone who is married. Well, let me yeah. let me summon the in, the the old Kevin here and say it don't matter what you think the eyes of God says. I'm concerned with what the Word of God says. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, salesman. Well, I think that pre that's an hour and twenty minutes of discussing the divorce certificate, and I think that's incredibly thorough. I think we've done a good job diving into that. We've covered the bases. We've covered the questions. I know that I have had in the past. Um, it's, it's been incredibly fruitful. Um, to those of you listening, one of the things we want to do with the end of this series is we would like to devote one episode. Once we've gone through all of it, we'd like to devote one episode to answering any questions that you have about this. So any questions that come up during this course of study of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, listen to each episode. And if you have any questions that arise, write them down, email them to us. Send them to Kevin. Send them to me if you're connected with me, if you're connected with Kevin on Facebook, whatever. Send them to our Facebook group in a private message or post them in our group or, or email them. Emailing them to us would be the best. Our email address is down in the in the show notes section. So email us any questions you have because we'd love to answer questions for our final episode in this series before we move on to something else. And, and here's just to kind of give a summary so that you know what's coming because somebody may have clicked on this and be like, man, you guys didn't hardly get into anything today. 
Um, well, actually, I think we did. We just got into exactly what we wanted to cover because what people want, they want to get right into the question, like, well, well who can and who can't? Well, we're going to get there. We're definitely going to get there. We're going to answer a lot of hypotheticals. We're going to get into all of that stuff. So trust as, the process. Yeah, trust as, the process. Yes. As I stated before, we're going to get into the weeds. Don't worry about it. We're going to do that. But we have to right now just be, this may be a little boring to some people because this is, this is more, you know, oh man, just give me the answer. Just give me the answer. But we have to know this stuff. This stuff is important and foundational. Yeah. And if, and so just to kind of give you an idea of what's to come. So next week we plan on talking about some specific prohibitions that were in the law against divorce and also reasons for divorce that were considered moral grounds under the Jewish law. And so we're going to talk about that uh, as we continue next week. And then after that, we're going to get into um, what Jesus said about it. We're going to get into the exception clauses. We're going to look at the the no exception views. We're going to get into uh, the betrothal view, the the ancestral views. We're going to get into um, meaning of the word pornea that, that Jesus used in his exception clause. We're going to get into Paul's writings. We're going to get into a lot of the application of that. We're going to get into a lot of these hypothetical questions that people ask. And then we're even going to get into the early church fathers um, because I've spent quite a bit of time studying that. And so I want to get into that, too. And so we're really if we're really going to get deep here and we hope that even if not all of this is something that interests you, that you will continue listening because ultimately it probably will. Um, because all of this is building up so that we have the proper social and literary context to understand. Because once again, I'm not a Jew. And I'm living 2,000 years after Jesus. And so I've got to understand not how I would understand these passages if I read them today, but how would I have understood them if I read them back then, if I would have heard this back then. And the only way you can know that is if we know the context. Yeah, the context is supremely important. It's extremely important because that is the framework that undergirds those conversations that Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It, it undergirds the context that Paul writes about in his writings. And there's there's so much to that that's so important. And hopefully you weren't bored by this discussion. If you were, though, please bear with us. Keep going with us. We are going to get there. It's going to be a fruitful discussion, and it's something that, in my opinion, every Christian needs to have a good grasp on because divorce is such a prevalent thing in our culture today. It is such a prevalent thing in our society, and if our viewpoints aren't informed by Scripture fully, then we run the risk of running roughshod over someone's faith, destroying families, destroying congregations, and destroying the lives of people unnecessarily because we just took what you called a microwave the theological approach to the subject. And that's, that's tragic. That shouldn't be the way things are. So thank you all for listening. Um, please share our podcast with your friends. Review us. Give us a five-star review. We are on iTunes. We are on Stitcher. Use your platform of choice. Join our Facebook group. Share it with your friends. And if you need anything, Kevin and I ever remain at your disposal. We love you all. We are here for you. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and God bless.